Hello and welcome to Cooking the Books with me, Jilly Smith. And this week we're working up a sweat in our own culinary tour de France with Guardian columnist Felicity Cloak. One more croissant for the road is Felicity's deep dive into the best of French gastronomy on a bike called Eddie and a hilarious summer read. Yeah, I very much felt like there was some missed meal opportunities. I think I only got to eat 34 croissant in the whole trip. But before we don our lycra and power through her four food moments, this month Cooking the Books is sponsored by Whole Foods Market, which seeks out the finest wholesome and organic foods. And this week we're putting the spotlight on the Whole Kids Foundation, one of the UK-based charitable foundations which is dedicated to helping kids eat better, with a mission to inspire schools and families to improve children's nutrition and wellness. Over the past month, we've been looking at what Whole Foods Market and sustainable chef Alexandra Dudley has found as part of the Summer Mindful Moments Guide to showcase the best well-being products available in store. Pop along to one of the seven London stores to get your hands on the products or head over to the Whole Foods Market Instagram channel at Whole Foods UK where you can find out more about the Mindful Moments Guide. Now, saddle up for a gloriously funny cycle ride across France as Felicity Cloak, a kind of gourmet Bridget Jones in Lycra, takes us in search of the best food in France. I asked her if she knew it would turn out to be such a caper. It didn't actually, at the time, feel like a caper, just because it was actually quite um, it was quite stressful at points. Um, but every time something dreadful happened, which it did with um, hilarious regularity, I did think, even in the depths of my misery, when I was sort of powering through a rainstorm up a hill with nothing open, I was like, this is going to make really good copy. Um, so it did, <laughs> I knew that it was gonna, it was going to, me- I think, make a good story just because I know when I read other people's travel narratives, I love the bits where things go wrong. There's that vicarious, you know, delight <laughs> if you're sitting in your armchair or your deck chair or whatever, reading a book when things go wrong. It's brilliant if it's not happening to you. Yeah. So yes. Absolutely. So <laughs> let's, let's start at the beginning. So you decided to cycle 2,300 kilometres around France in search of the best culinary experiences. That's a hell of a quest. Why? Uh, <laughs> for a start, I didn't realise it was going to be quite so far. And then when I finished and added it all up, I was annoyed it wasn't further because it felt like further. Um, I didn't realise very naively um, when I decided to do this and, and pitched it as a concept um, I didn't realise France is the largest com- country in Western Europe, which is <laughs> something that somehow escaped me until I started plotting a route. Um, but I just, I've always loved France. Uh, went there, you know, on childhood holidays, obviously, because it was close and it was quite cheap. Um, and then I rediscovered it more recently because, you, know, you know, you always uh, discard your first love, don't you? And you go to more exotic places, you know, more in you think interesting places, but I always came back to France and the food is a big part of it for me. It's sort of the the first glamorous food I ever ate, the first foreign food is, you know, things like chocolate mousse and pain chocolat. You may notice the theme. Um, but, uh, and so it's got a really special place in my heart. But I realised even though I felt like I knew it quite well because I've been going for so many years, I didn't, you know, I really had just barely scratched the surface and I wanted to see how it all joined up and how... Um, the different dishes sort of sat in their terroir. Um, And so, yeah, I decided to to really get to know it from the ground up um, and uh, spend some real time there. It's kind of what you do, though, isn't it? I mean, for for your job, you you dig deep, don't you, into the source of food. You try lots of different recipes of the same particular 
um, dish and you really try to get to its its own story. This is kind of what you did with French food. I mean, the whole of French food. There's nothing you didn't. (laughs) I don't know. I keep thinking things. Oh, I wish I'd done that. The thing was, so it is a lot of the dishes. So obviously in my my day job, um, I do the how to make the perfect column for The Guardian. And so I had actually, in theory, perfected some of these dishes already, like something like Beth Bourguignon or Tartiflette or Madeleine. Um, I'd done for the column, but I really wanted to see them in their context and to find out more about them and to see whether there was you know perfecting that could have been done with perfection um and actually the recipes I did find different you know not necessarily better things not saying that my original recipes weren't perfect but you know you can do a little spin like with the Beth Bourguignon um the best one I had and I think I ate three in two days in um Burgundy the best one I had had sort of cloves and sweet spices in which was sort of a medieval touch that I really liked so I've incorporated that into the recipe and used some different touches so I feel like there's always there's always a bit of twiddling to be doing with recipes isn't it you never quite achieve whatever it says on the column you never quite achieve perfection um but what the hardest thing was choosing I wanted to do 21 different dishes just because the Tour de France proper uh has 21 stages and so I thought well I'll base all of my stages around different classic dishes but with France it's very hard to pick out just 21 so I sort of um there are a few that I missed out that I would like to uh, things like chocolate mousse in fact that I would like to uh revisit at some point but I think I got a pretty good spread there's the only thing is it being France uh the the vegetarian offering is not as strong as it might be i think there's a couple of vegetarian dishes in there but it's quite quite yeah. meaty well, a croissant i suppose is a bit vegetarian isn't it a croissant that's true a ratatouille a salad nichoise can easily be made uh, vegetarian as can tartiflette so there are options yeah. there but it wasn't the sort of bounty of fruit and vegetables and actually i really felt that after uh seven weeks there i first thing i did when i uh, came back to london was have a really big uh thai style salad with loads of chili and fish sauce and raw crunchy vegetables <laughs> such joy yeah and you really <laughs> did work hard i mean it you worked hard on the actual cycling i mean i was sweating from my armchair but you worked hard on getting the food in i mean it's greedy but it's also very rigorous i mean sometimes it feels like uh, really you can't eat anymore i can't believe that you are going to cycle <laughs> up a hill having eaten all that food was there a point where you just thought i'm, I'm working too hard on this one uh, no in fact this, i felt like i didn't eat enough because sometimes it was, it's a recurring theme in the book that i can never find any restaurants or boulangeries open when i want to eat um and so yeah i very much felt like there were some missed meal opportunities i think i only got to eat 34 croissant in the whole trip and you know at least uh five of those were in paris on the same day so um you know the the definite you could eat more (laughs) it sounds like you're going to go on a on a trip to find that chocolate mousse and uh and eat a lot more along the way we're going to do a whistle stop tour of your uh your grand tour uh we're going to start in Brittany in your first food moment the biggest oyster in the world why did you choose that? <laughs> I don't know if it's strictly in the world, but it felt like in the world as I was staring at it. It can't be any bigger. And I felt like it was staring back at me. It was that large that it could well have had a face on it somewhere. Um, so it was in Brittany um, and it was in uh, the oyster capital of Brittany and therefore probably France, a little place called Cancale, which is very close to uh, Saint-Malo. 
and um, it's very famous for its oysters and the beach there is just completely covered with oyster cages and people in waders and stuff. It's fascinating to watch. Um, and there's an oyster museum there, which I highly recommend if it's raining, um, <laughs> as it was, uh, predictably. Um, but anyway, so they have a little market down in the quay there and there's probably about 10 or 11 stalls all selling oysters. And I sort of looked at it and I thought, how do I, you know, I know a rock from a native, but apart from that, you know, how do I tell these oysters, which have all come from the same beach, how how do I choose who to buy from? And then I saw this guy selling, he had norm, normal oysters as well, they're all graded by size, um, but he also had this enormous one that was called um, a horse's hoof oyster because it was as large as a horse's hoof. And I was just like, I have to, I have to try that. And my friend Matt, who was with me at that point, was like, no, I, I won't be having one of those. Um, and everyone standing around came to watch as the guy had to open it. He had to take it over to a wall to brace himself and use like a proper tool. The other ones he was opening with gay abandon, you know, like 10, 10 a second. But this required some serious welly. Um, and he gave it to me. And he also, they give you just, you know, a, a paper plate to eat them with. But this one, he lent me his proper metal knife because he said, you know, you cannot eat this in one. You need a knife. Um, at which point that scared me because I feel like anything that you're eating when it's still alive um but you require a special knife to deal with um there's you know you need to psych yourself up um anyway so i looked at this oyster he told me i think it was about 15 years old um which made me feel a bit bad that i just bought it (laughs) and didn't really want to eat it but i did eat it um and I found the, the, the fact that I had to chew it and I had to sort of cut it into quarters, I found it a little bit disconcerting. Um, and actually, I don't think I ate anything for the next 24 hours. A, because I couldn't find anything to eat after that. But B, because that oyster, he, yeah, he was a big guy. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a sort of real baptism of fire into French shellfish, that. There's a lot of that. There's a lot of you kind of being very competitive with yourself. You push yourself. I mean, you literally push yourself with the cycling. You push yourself with the eating. I mean, what is it with you, Felicity, that gives you such drive to to to, to kind of take all the, on these massive challenges? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit mad. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, potentially. I'm just very greedy. I think that's the root of basically everything that I do is in terms of what can I eat next? What can I try? You know, you always think, what if that oyster had been the most amazing oyster I'd ever tried? Imagine that. And I passed it up and I didn't think it was likely, but I just, I couldn't, I couldn't let it pass without trying it. And that is again, a theme that runs through the book a lot. Just, oh, what does this taste like? And once I've heard about it, I have to have it. I actually, on a previous trip, um, the first cycling trip I did, uh, the length of France a couple of years before, um, which was just a holiday, but I still found myself having an oyster ice cream on the Ile de Ray and everyone else had lovely sort of chocolate, pistachio, whatever. I was like, there's an oyster ice cream. I have to try it. <laughs> having tried having tried it, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone, but it was there. I ate it. Your second food moment is very you. You're making crepes with the most famous crepier in France. <laughs> Which was very badly, very badly. I think I did put the uh, pictures on Instagram and they did not reflect well on me. Um, So, yes, I wanted to find... So crepe was um, one of my dishes and I wanted to find a really great recipe for. And so I thought I'd find, you know, uh, Brittany is the home of the crepe. And so I thought I'd find the guy that had won, you know, the the creperie competition of all France. Um, And he happened to be in Brittany. And obviously he wasn't just in Brittany. He was on the furthest point in Brittany, the furthest point northwest in Finisterre. 
And so it took me sort of two days to get there from San Malo on the train um, because it was raining relentlessly. Um, (laughs) And then he and he wasn't open. He's open very limited hours because he is so popular. And it's nothing fancy. It's not kind of like Heston Blumenthal does pancakes. It's just this little, you know, restaurant half timbered in a Breton village. Um, But I booked, I was so over eager that I sort of emailed and booked a table because he wasn't open for the winter. So I couldn't call, booked a table about three months in advance. (laughs) And um, they did obviously think I was a bit mad. Um, but after I'd eaten this crepe, which was extraordinarily good, really great, really very interesting sort of local ingredients that he put on, on the top. And I said to his wife, who was doing the um, serving, I said, oh, can I just come and have a look at him making the crepe? And they could not have been nicer. Not only did he, you know, let me watch him doing it, but after things had gone a bit, got a bit less crazy, he said, well, now you have to come and have a go. And I was like, oh, God, just watch this man who's, you know, is a master of his craft being very deft you know they spread it out on the hot plate they use a little tool they flick their wrist he was like it's all in the wrist um and so then I was having a go and then a friend of his appeared who is also a master crepier who had come to visit him and they were all watching me and laughing um but they were so kind so kind and he um he was obviously so embarrassed by my crepe that he folded them up to give to me <laughs> to take with me because he obviously couldn't have them in his dustbin so um yeah that was just such a lovely experience he's really humble uh man but just you know i love that it's very common in france i think someone that is a complete master of their trade and it doesn't have to be something very fancy but they're completely passionate about it um so that was my first taste of that um and yeah. it was delicious and while you're doing all this tasting that we know you for, there's this sort of parallel narrative of you in your lycra, in your very sort of Bridget Jones style of kind of, you know, pushing your your huge bike around and, and you know, <laughs> calling your bike Eddie. And there's this whole sort of series of, of cartoons. Just paint us the picture of that creperie experience. What are you wearing at that point? I am in uh, full lycra. Um, you describe yourself as an Anglo-Saxon ogre standing next to the diminutive wife. Yeah, Sylvie, who uh, is the name of the wife, who is such a nice woman, um, but he was probably about five foot and um, very slender. And I suddenly felt like, you know, it's not the most forgiving of mediums, lycra. Um, and I, d- I did feel just huge suddenly. Um, so, yeah, that also made me laugh. And I had all of these bags with, you know, I was really heavily laden as well. And I think because it had been raining, I was sort of really splashed with mud and bike oil when I arrived. So it was it was very kind of them. That's what I felt like. I thought people in France would be very snooty, but no one batted an eyelid. They may well have been laughing in other places at me in the kitchen, but they did, you know, they did not turn a hair. No, madame, of course, you know, table for one, that's totally fine. <laughs> And of course, your friends come and join you at at various intervals. I mean, I, I'm fascinated by how you actually managed to do it by yourself. Um, I mean, when they weren't with you, because of course, there were whole periods of time where you were very much by yourself. Did it feel frightening at all? Um, no, people were worried about me. Um back in the UK I put a picture up the first night I camped once uh, my friend Matt had left on a ferry 
uh, back to civilization. That was the first night I camped because no one for some reason was very keen on camping with me. Um, so I put up my little tent, which literally is like a body bag. Um, and my friend Elaine just messaged me saying, are you all right? As a mother, I'm worried about you. Um, but actually, I, I never felt scared. You know, I reflected that actually, I don't believe that France is any more dangerous than Britain. And I'd certainly do it in Britain without feeling worried. Um, I think there was only one one campsite that felt a little bit dodgy and I had a bad feeling as soon as I got through the gate but by that time Madame had spotted me and was already booking me in so I was too I was too British and polite to say oh actually I've changed I changed my mind um, so that was I don't know there was a slightly weird atmosphere there a lot of staring going on um, but apart from that no and everyone was just so friendly and what I love about you know France outside the big cities is that you know it's not always that they engage you in lots of conversation but everyone says you know even if you're brushing your teeth in a, a campsite uh, loo block people everyone that comes in will say you know bonjour and so it's that it's that connection yeah. that makes you sort of think I don't know everyone is willing me well and then once you told them you were on a bike and you were writing about food they could not tell you enough stuff so no in general i had a great time it it feels like that but your third food moment though is packed with friends a whole load of them come down and and share a bouchon with you tell us about the calf's head (laughs) um so yes strangely enough people were really keen to come and cycle in burgundy (laughs) with me um not sure what that was about uh the alps proved less uh less popular so i'd just come from the alps i just cycled up um the col de Plan, which is a, a substantial climb in the alps and eating a big tartar flat and then i came down back down to lyon and i met uh i think there were five five friends in lyon and we only had one one night there to my disappointment um and uh so i booked in um to one of these bouchons which are very traditional they're quite often described as taverns in english but they're not like that they're like very rustic restaurants and they have you know the wine comes from the barrel and it is best described as rustic but you know it's 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 made to go with the food which is very meaty very awful heavy um but you know really <laughs> once you once you've wrapped your head around that very delicious and i only i was so pleased i had lots of friends because it enabled me to try everything on the menu i had one friend who was about four months pregnant so i let her off she was allowed to order a lamb stew <laughs> apart from that i was like no i'm doing the ordering and luckily they had strong stomachs so we had the uh the tete de veau which actually i'm i'm quite a big fan of tete de veau so that was wasn't too um strange for me we had the um the fireman's apron which uh, turned out to be deep fried tripe which was you know pretty good but my favorite thing just because i've had bad experiences with it before is the sausage called andouillette which um anyone who's been to France um, has probably at least smelt, if not sampled. It's a very, um, it's a very deep offal, by which I mean it comes from deep within the animal. Um, and sometimes it has a very, what euphemistically described as a farmyardy smell. Um, and I try, you know, I don't like not liking things. Um, so I try with this sausage, but I do find it a bit, a bit much. But on this occasion, I don't know if it's because I've been in France for so long, I've gone native or what. Um, but when it came, it was actually, the texture was very interesting, um, which I quite liked by that point. You know, a few tubes and stuff weren't going to put me off. And it had this, 
it had this uh, lovely sharp mustard sauce and when I order Andrea I find it very difficult to leave any of it even if I don't like it because I feel like that's so typically oh they might think oh typical Brit you know they always order it they never finish it um and so I knew that I was going to make everyone finish this but actually on this occasion it, it wasn't too much of a penance um so yeah we had uh we had about five five courses of offal um and it was just it's a joy hardcore <laughs> eating isn't it I mean you know we kind of don't really eat like that anymore well, I don't anyway. Mm. <laughs> I, mean, I had to. I grew no, up on that I mean, stuff, but I, I've left it far behind me. But it's it's really quite revolting that Andriette, isn't it? I mean, really, come on. It's yeah. It's yeah. I um, <laughs> <laughs> I struggle with it. I like it more now, but it would still not be if I were in my normal having fun holiday mode, as opposed to my must try this, must write about it. Then it wouldn't be the first choice. But I just find it very interesting that it's it's now quite popular all over France, and you'll see it on you know menus everywhere. And I just find that a very interesting disconnect because it it does smell like manure. It, it is colon and. Yeah, I mean, it's got all sorts in it. Um, <laughs> there are lots of different types. I spent a long time when I was writing the book on the website of, um, I think it's the sort of um, Association Amicable of Andriette Fanciers, basically. So this sort of, this enthusiast group who take it really seriously and there's a really long list of rules, um, which I waded through laboriously in French. Um, but yeah, it's a real passion with them. And I, you know, I don't think, we you know, we love our black pudding and our haggis uh, in this country, but I don't think, not sure if we take it quite that seriously. But that's what's so great about <laughs> France. They're just, they are mad about food. <laughs> Absolutely. Now it's called One More Croissant for the Road. You actually don't eat that many croissants in the and you talk about them a lot and the last food moment is finally you reach the Arc de Triomphe you've re- you're getting to the end of your Tour de France and you finally find the good croissant way to rub it in to say I don't eat that many croissants I tried so hard but it was sometimes it is very hard sometimes to find things that are open in particularly in rural France um so when I got to, by the time I got to Paris, I could probably, I can still remember the good croissants I'd had by that point. I can remember where they are and where I ate them and et cetera, et cetera. And then I got to Paris and I didn't want Paris to be the home of the good croissants because Paris, like, you know, London, like every capital city, considers itself the bee's knees. And I thought, oh, you know, take this down a peg or two. Unfortunately, Paris was the home of all the good croissants, almost all the good croissants that I tried, certainly the best ones. Um, and I went on this quest um, before. So I was meeting a friend who was my sort of official, um, you know, um, like Travellers Club, Phileas Fogg type thing. She was going to meet me under the Arc de Triomphe at midday. Um, and we'd arranged this before I'd left the UK. Um, and so I thought I must, I must get all the croissants before she arrived. So I got up really early and went on a little bakery tour of Paris, sort of ticking them off. Um, and I think I had six or seven that morning. I didn't eat, I must say, I must confess, I didn't finish all of them. Um, in fact, yeah, maybe I did finish some of them. Um, but it was just such a joy because they were great. And, they, you know, a croissant really relies on being very fresh out of the oven. And these, they obviously sell a lot of croissants. There's a great high turnover. Oh, it was such a joy. It really was. I'd love to go and do that again. Go on, tell us what makes the perfect croissant. As with everything perfect, this is very much my taste. And I'm very, I'm well aware that if you look on Instagram and there's people 
heathens, I would say, that cut a croissant in half. You should never take a knife to a croissant. It's a violence. Um, but to show its perfect layers, it's the lamination of the pastry and it's all sort of very airy. That's not what I want from my croissant. I don't care if that's technically correct. I like it to be very crisp at the ends and on the bottom. So it's almost, I mean, it should be so buttery that you always think, almost think, did someone deep fry this? There was actually one that I had uh, down in the Cote d'Azur where I was thinking, have they deep fried this in butter? Not that I'm unhappy about that scenario. Um, but so I like it very, very crisp and crunchy. But in the middle, I like it to be a bit doughy. So when you pull at it, um, you know, the middle slightly unfurls like a sort of damp, damp snail. Um, and then I like the flavour not to be not not too sweet, um, a little bit savoury, but have that slightly sort of yeasty complexity to it and because I don't eat my I find it <laughs> I find it slightly painful um when I go and stay uh you know with my nieces and nephews and they're just putting great wadges of Nutella and jam and things on croissant I don't think a good croissant needs anything else you know not not even butter and I love butter I love Marmite but a good croissant should stand alone um so yes yes I, uh, I had some corkers <laughs> there was some tremendous lows and tremendous highs now, I know what I would choose. I want to know what your lowest low and your highest high was. Uh, the lowest low actually was probably on my birthday, um, which has started off quite well. Um, it, started, well it started off at the, the camps I mentioned earlier that I found a little bit creepy. Um, but then I sort of, I cycled into uh, a place called Mo, which is obviously famous for Brie. Um, I had a lovely little strawberry tart for breakfast. I had a big wedge of Brie de Mo for lunch, went for a swim in the river. Oh, it was idyllic. Um, and I booked myself into the only Michelin star restaurant of my trip uh, on the outskirts of Paris. And so I thought, I'll leisurely cycle into Paris, la-di-da. You know, I'd even planned to paint my nails for this occasion. Um, <laughs> what actually happened was that the road into Paris was so busy and so unpleasant um i lost all mobile signal um in some royal forest on the edge of paris i was completely i arrived at the hotel i think an hour after my restaurant booking um i was crying i you know <laughs> just it, it, you know it's a real comedy of errors but at the time it didn't feel very comic um and literally i sort of threw my stuff into the room left them a really sobbing down the phone at their aunt the restaurant's aunt's phone saying i'm so sorry um and anyway so i just got my bike back on my bike with just wet hair I hadn't even you know I just put it under the shower I hadn't had time to wash it um and uh when I got to the restaurant via various roadworks and diversions I was crying as I was cycling <laughs> um they couldn't have been nicer actually they were just lovely and they were like don't worry we got your message they didn't laugh um and uh after I had this meal which was just lovely I had a little bit of champagne and afterwards I said to the um to madame um behind the counter I said uh, I said thank you so much because I'm it's my birthday and I'm on my own and I wanted to celebrate and she said oh but you're not on your own you're with us and she came round from behind the counter to give me a kiss and I honestly started crying again because it had just been such an awful day um and she just yeah she really made up for it so that was that was my low um my high was probably um it was probably actually in the Alps just because I didn't know whether I could cycle up the Jouplin. I'd never tried to cycle anything up, up anything that big before. Um, I had quite a heavy bike, not really made for going up mountains. 
Um, and just the feeling when I got to the top and realised that I'd made it and I had photographic evidence of having made it, it was just, it was just incredible. And I knew all I had to do from this point was just cycle back down, which was actually terrifying. Um, and then uh, eat a tartiflette. And that was just <laughs> the best feeling. In the, I mean, it was like 35 degrees C. Um, so I was the only person eating a tartiflette in Morzine that day. But it was just like, I think... Um, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I didn't quite know whether I could do physically, but that was the real... It's very rare as an adult, I think, where you embark on something where you have no idea how it's going to go. Um, but that that was one thing. I was just really, really, really proud of myself um, and very pleased to eat that tartiflette. Well, that says it all about you, Felicity, really, because, you know, I thought you were going to choose the part, the St. John party <laughs> that you were invited to. You managed to lick your way into a St. John party and get completely plastered within about five minutes. Totally, you know, have the most amazing time. But no, you choose cycling up the Alps. I mean, and a tarty flat. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't manage is... to embarrass myself in the Alps, so that was one thing. <laughs> But that's the spirit of the book, isn't it? You've obviously spent a lot of time working out this route in advance, planning it all, booking yourself into these extraordinary restaurants and extraordinary finds, because they're not all, you know, only one Michelin-starred restaurant. You find a lot of really, really interesting places. And the book actually does take us through a kind of secret France. I'm really tempted to follow in your footsteps. Not on a bike, I might <laughs> add. <laughs> but it, it it feels like that. I mean, is, have you had lots of feedback from people saying, oh, my God, you know, we, we, we're going to go in your and follow your tour? I have had quite a few. Obviously, uh, this summer, people have been... Sl- <laughs> slightly re- reading it sort of as armchair travel um yeah. but i yeah i've had a few people that have, have gone off and tried things and said oh this is really good and the the restaurant i go to for the mussels in uh normandy a few people have since gone there and said oh my god it's just as good and just as mad as you say which makes me really gratified so yeah i hope it's kind of useful as a bit of a travel travel yeah. guide as well. well we'll find you know Felicity Cloak was here as in that Rick Stein was here in all this yes place. I need a plaque that's the next step you do <laughs> get a plaque so what's next well um I'm hoping to do another such odyssey um obviously at the moment it's hard because basically the whole of uh, the world is closed so um it's slightly on the back burner at the moment but um and in the meantime I'm having a really great time in the UK doing little exploratory um little exploratory journeys just because I think that the UK would be a really great subject uh for this because again it's a country that i think i know well but having cycled the outer hebrides last september i realized i don't know it well at all um so yes watch this space well i think that that's an an incredibly important and timely theme actually you know at a time when nobody wants to travel by public transport a bike is great uh when we're all looking at our own country with with renewed interest because we're so busy jetting off elsewhere Mm. that we don't actually look at what what's under our nose so for our summer holidays this year give us an idea of where we should be heading to find the best meal in britain oh (laughs) that's a question to spring on me um i have to say that um one of the um Oh, well, I'm actually going to go for the Hebrides. I don't know if they're welcoming people, but it's just a really lovely place to cycle, the Outer Hebrides. It's a very well-marked cycle trick. It's the most beautiful place. The beaches are gorgeous. The water is fresh, I would say, but in the temperatures it is in London today, I don't think it's a bad thing. And you will eat 
so well. Scallops, black pudding, you know, potato scones for the vegetarians. All the scones, in fact. Tablet, just delicious. Um, and such lovely, lovely people. Such an interesting place. Um, so, yeah, I maybe would head to Scotland would be my choice. So there you go. I spring a difficult question on you. You meet the challenge, you win. As you do. You're <laughs> yes. an extraordinary adventurer. It's a great book. I absolutely loved it. Thank you so Thank much, you. Felicity. And I look forward to the next one. My absolute pleasure. Thanks for listening. Do rate and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to make sure you don't miss a bit. And if you fancy keeping up with all my news, make your way to jillysmith.com and sign up for the mailing list. Next week, we're with Easter Belfrage and Yotamotalengi for their four food moments in their new book, Flavour. 